Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking Tour de France, all Tour de France, all the time during the French Grand Tour. Things are looking good for Tadej Pogacar, who just takes a five-plus-minute lead over Rigoberto Uran into the second rest day. And we have a special guest with Aisha Pratt-Lear joining us to talk about the Tour de France outside of being a professional runner. She is also a cycling fanatic. She watches probably more pro cycling than more, more, most pro cycling journalists and analysts. So I thought she had some really interesting things to say about um, the, the journey to Tokyo that it's, you know, that I think maybe cycling, the cycling media is underestimating how difficult that entry process is going to be and that it's not, you're not just showing up and like, you know, acclimating to the time zone, hanging out, getting good training, that this call for riders to leave the tour early to prepare for Tokyo could be uh, somewhat misguided and they'd be better off just staying in the race because no one will be acclimated to the time zone and the experience over there will be pretty unpleasant anyway. But first, before we get to that, let's introduce our Tour de France sponsor. The podcast and newsletter during the tour is brought to you by Idahoan Foods. Enjoy 30% off any order at shop.idahoan.com during the Tour de France by entering discount code BTP30 at checkout. You can also use this code BTP30 for 30% off your first subscription order and free shipping and 15% off and free shipping on every order after that. If you want more, if you're going to want it more than once, you got to get that subscription. That is the way to go. That's where you save the big bucks. You can mix and match your favorite 100% real Idaho and potato products and receive free shipping on any order over $55. All the products are naturally gluten-free. Idahoans 100% real potatoes are fresh dried to make prep easy and done within minutes. And this is huge for cyclists. Did you know that a 2019 study published in the Journal of Applied Physiology concluded that eating potatoes during prolonged cycling is as effective as commercial carbohydrate gels to support exercise performance? Furthermore, potatoes are a promising savory alternative for athletes because they are a cost-effective, nutrient-dense, whole food source of carbs compared to the overly sweet carbohydrate gels. Uh, This is big because I I don't eat enough gels and bars on my rides because I just think maybe they don't taste that well. Sometimes I'm thinking, is, is this, is this taste good? No, I don't think so. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat it. And then I underfuel and then I, oh my God, I underperform to avoid an underperformance disaster. Like I experience on a daily basis, there are some Idaho and potato food products in there. See how, see how that works. You can get all these products on shop.idahoan.com and use BTP 30 for 30% off any order during this tour. We just saw the first major stage in the Pyrenees on Sunday. Um, we took in some, we took in the highest climb of the tour, and I think that there was a feeling of disappointment from fans that there was this. Um, I, I think partly this is the media's fault, saying that there's going to be these GC showdowns, um, but there's not. There's not going to be GC showdowns because UAE is leading the race by five minutes and eighteen seconds over Rigoberto Uran, and they're just letting these breaks go. I mean, a big break got up the road both days, Saturday and Sunday. Because why wouldn't it? Um, UAE, the responsibility for them is to control the race. They're just going to let these breaks keep going. Uh, what's interesting about it is so on Sunday, there was three Yumbo riders, I believe two Enios and two EF riders in those moves. They're up there primarily for stage wins, I assume, but also to act as satellite riders in case, um, let's say, Richard Carapaz attacks on the second to last climb and then wants teammates to pace him down the descent so he can drive open a gap on Tadej Pogacar and then start the final climb with the gap. 
Where this gets tricky, though, is if UAE just lets it go, um, which is what they did. They let it go out to 10 minutes. I thought, you know, why not 30? Like, like what's going on there? Like, I believe Woot Van Aert is like 35 minutes back, and he was one of the highest GC riders in that group. Just, just let that thing go. Um, obviously, you have to make the time cut, but, you know, in, in what happens is you strand the, the satellite riders up the road. So EF and Ineos and Yumbo. They have all these riders up there that they can use later, but well, if the gap gets so big, they can't use them because then, you know, they have to like literally get off their bikes and wait, which is, I think, what the Ineos riders did at the top of the second to last climb yesterday, or just keep going, which is what EF and Yumbo did because, you know, you get so far into a stage and you think, well, you know, I could win it, which is exactly what happened to Sepkus yesterday, where he's not going to wait. Um, same thing with Alejandro Valverde, and, and, uh, who got second place on the stage. He's not going to wait for Enric Moss. That would be ridiculous. So, and this is the second time this has happened where uh, Wout Van Aert won the double von two stage. Jonas Vingegaard could have used him to drive open the gap to the chasing trio on the descent, but you know the team's not. You know he's he's far enough at the road. He has a chance to win. They're not going to call him back to wait for him. So, um, this is kind of like UAE's superpower, where they're not a strong GC team, but. The gap is so big. The two keys are the gap is so big to second place, and then the gaps are so small between second and tenth that um, it allows them to use the rival, you know, not the rivalry, but the competition for the podium against their rivals. Because, you know, if let's say Rigo, even Rigoberto Uran jumps in the breakaway, uh, Ineos would chase because Ineos also wants to finish on the podium. Ineos wants to finish second. You know, Yumbo would have to chase because that would hurt Jonas Vindegaard. It gives them like automatic, you know, hidden teammates all around because they're the last GC spot to be on, under threat because their lead is so big. Um, and what's going to happen probably for the rest of the mountain stage is a little bit disappointing to say, but they're just going to keep doing this. It's it's the same same playbook from Sunday that, that's just going to keep happening over and over again in these Pyrenees. Um, we do have three mountain stages remaining, which is fun and exciting, but I think, unfortunately, they're probably all going to be breakaway days. You know, two of them are summit finishes, are, are pretty tough summit finishes. I, you, know, you could imagine where the Tourmalet is just too hard for a break, um, and that maybe the flat run-in, it's, it's a fairly, it's like a sloping uphill all day to the b- bottom of the Tourmalet. You know, maybe a group can stay away there, and Luzardian Luzardian on stage 18 is a GC day. But, you know, the problem with this is, you know, these are all, all the stages that are remaining. So tomorrow's stage 16 has multiple mountain state, multiple mountain passes far away from the finish. I think that, you know, that is probably the most quote unquote mild of the remaining stages. That's where attacks would have to come. That's where Ineos would have to engineer something. Because if you wait for stages 17 and 18, well, Tadej Pogacar has no problem defending himself on the second to last climb and the last climb of the day. That's actually what he wants because he is just stronger than everyone else. So even if you have teammates, even if you have a, a numbers advantage on him, it doesn't really hurt him that much because he can just ride faster than you. The, the, where it does hurt him to have a numbers advantage is, you know, let's just say on stage 15, where if Richard Carapaz attacks on the second to last climb, and he does, he did have a numbers advantage and he had riders waiting at the top of that climb. He could have driven open a gap on that descent, started the final climb, you know, 20, 30 seconds ahead of Tadej Pogacar. That's where the teammates help, an isolated Tadej Pogacar, mind you. 
But if they don't start using them that way, it doesn't matter how many riders they had. They had he had two teammates at 18.8k to go. By 18k to go, he had no teammates, and it was one on one after his attack dropped his teammates. So, well, that, that's nice you had teammates there, but they're actually setting pace for Tadej Pogacar because if the pace is high, it's probably hurting Richard Carapaz more than it's hurting Tadej Pogacar. So. Um, it, it somewhat eliminates the advantage, the quote-unquote advantage other teams have over UAE. Really, the only weakness for UAE is, you know, a stage like stage 16, where, you know, Mikkel Berg, and I talked about this in the interview, or the, just the chat with Aisha, where Mikkel Berg, Mark, Mark Hershey, Brendan McNulty don't really know what they're doing. They're pacing too hard on the early climbs. They're dropping themselves. You know, if Pogachar is isolated three climbs from the finish, then you could try something. But it's just so, I think it's so difficult because for a team to try to put Pogacar under trouble, they have to make the pace so high, which in turn hurts their rider more than it hurts Pogacar. So it's this, it's this kind of fundamental flaw with the, with the team strength strategy, because if you set pace, it only makes sense if you have the strongest rider. That, that's the myth of the Sky Froome era, where it's like, they're so good because they set a hard pace on the climb and it keeps anyone from attacking Chris Froome. Well, that only works because Chris Room is stronger than the others. If, if you're not stronger than the others, you get a stage 17 of the 2020 Tour de France where Bahrain sets the pace for Mika Landa and then Mika Landa gets dropped when everyone else attacks. It just, it just doesn't work. You, you have to, your foundation has to be the strongest rider in the race, which they don't have. Um, Ineos has a bit of a Carapaz problem. It's probably uncomfortable. I, I like Richard Carapaz. It's uncomfortable for me to talk about. I'm sure it's uncomfortable for them and the team to kind of acknowledge, but he is not strong enough. And he's not only is he not stronger than Tadej Pogacar, which, which he was not in the, in the Alps. Um, Pogacar was much stronger, obviously, but he was stronger than Rigoberta Oran and Jonas Vindegaard. He was dropping those guys when he was attacking. He just wasn't dropping Pogacar. What's happening in the Pyrenees, and this should be really concerning for them, is he's not even dropping Oran and Vindegaard. He's slightly distanced Oran yesterday. But Iran was just riding his own pace. He didn't panic and he pulled himself back up and then he actually counterattacked Richard Carapaz. So, you know, Carapaz is actually in, I don't see how he finishes on the podium at this point, which is a huge disaster for that team because they put so much in, they're putting, they're still putting so much into winning or a podium. I mean, they called riders back from the breakaway yesterday when Yumbo and EF did not, because th those teams know, well, we can probably finish on the podium without supporting our riders, and we can go for stage wins. So, you know, yeah, if, if you tell me I can have third place overall and no stage wins, I'd, I'd rather take third place overall with two stage wins. Obviously, that's better. And, th and that's the risk Yumbo and EF are, are running, but I think they're, they're properly calculating the risk-reward there, where Ineos is, is, they're putting everything towards Carapaz's. At this point, it's a podium, a run at the podium. I mean, I don't even think they're seriously in contention for the win anymore. But what's gonna, what could happen is it's looking currently like they're going to dump everything into the Carapaz campaign, and they're not even going to finish on the podium, which would be a complete disaster. Um, and I should talk about, so Yumbo keeps... Apparently, they had three riders in the breakaway. Apparently, that was a mistake. Wout Van Aert wasn't supposed to be up there. Uh, it was, certainly was fun that he was there because he was sniping KOM points, which you know, really makes absolutely no sense. There's no point for him to do that. Um, it seems like a waste of energy, but now he is only 10 points behind Wout Poles. 
and could win the KOM jersey, which if he keeps getting him breaks, you know, I guess one theory would be, well, he needs to stay with Jonas Vindegaard to set pace to make things hard for Tadej Pogacar so Jonas Vindegaard can attack Tadej Pogacar. But from what I just talked about, does that even really make sense? Because can Wout Van Aert put Tadej Pogacar under pressure? Probably not. Does he need to? Probably not, because Enios will do that for you. So, you know, maybe Wout could keep chasing KOM points and win the KOM jersey and then try to win the final sprint in the KOM jersey, which would be absolutely insane. And no one's ever done it before. Um, that, would, that would be pretty good for the team. And then to also still finish on the podium, that's definitely the best of both worlds for them. They also keep, they had Sepp Kuss up there who won the stage. So that's their second stage win. Uh, I mean, it's actually really impressive how they've turned things around from having their leader crash out, having their whole race go to ashes. And then now they're pulling out at least two stage wins and a likely podium. Um, Super impressive, about the best you could hope for for them. And EF has not been as successful, but they're trying. You know, they were definitely trying for stage wins yesterday. They kept Ruben Guerrero up front. It uh, didn't work, but you know they can keep trying, and, and they're strong enough to win a stage with one of their um, kind of support riders in the rest of the race, and Rigo is looking very good for the podium. Um, as I mentioned, the KOM jersey is it's thrilling. We have four riders, four world, world-class riders, which is rare um, in contention for it, and they're fighting for it. I mean, these guys have almost given up trying to win um, stages. They're just going for the KOM jersey because you really have to pick one. It's Wout Poles, Mike Woods, Naira Quintana, Wout Van Aert. They're sprinting really hard on these early climbs. If you're putting that much work into the KOM jersey, you're you're not going to be able to win the stage because you're just burning your matches way too early in in the race. Um, this is as thrilling as I can ever remember this competition being. Poles is winning currently. Um, you know you can't. Naira's pretty good climber. Woods he had that crash on stage 14. That would probably ding him. I can't imagine he can beat Wout Poles, who's looked much stronger after that crash. Um, Wout Venner, uh, oddly, maybe the best climber in the race, besides Tadej Bokacar. I mean, he wins the double Vontu stage, and he actually didn't lose that much time on the final time at Vontu, um, <laughs> being chased by the Ineos team. So, I mean, don't rule him out. Uh, green green jersey is actually getting super interesting. This, is, this has kind of been the silent battle. No one's really talking about it during this week just because it's so climb heavy. But Michael Matthews is closing in at about 20 points per day and is only he's 72 points behind. Um, he's going to keep closing that for the next three stages. Um, he could be about even with Cavendish by the stage 19 sprint stage. So that, that would be a thrilling battle for the intermediate sprint. Um, I think Cavendish wins that stage if he makes it to the Pyrenees. Um, it would just be a question of how close can Matthews finish to him? Can he finish on the podium on that stage? Because then we're possibly going into Champs-Élysées stage on stage 21 um, with an intermediate sprint and final sprint to decide the green jersey, which would be awesome. So this is as exciting as I can ever remember the battle for the podium and KOM and points jersey being, which is great because it looks like the battle for the GC is over. I know people are saying, uh, Tadej Pogacar doesn't like the heat. Well, okay, there's a difference between not liking the heat. Like, who likes the heat? Like, I don't like to ride in the heat. Doesn't mean he's just going to fall apart and forget how to ride his bike. I, I feel like teams of like, they're like basing their whole strategy around this premise that Tadej Pogacar cannot pedal a bike when it is over 28 degrees Celsius. Um, now, he looked pretty dang comfortable yesterday, and yesterday was, 
Yeah, I think people think it's not, they're like, well, it's 85 degrees. Like that's not that hot. But when you're on these exposed, exposed climbs at that high of altitude, it's brutal. So um, it can, it can feel quite hot, even if you're, you know, if you're sitting in Lawrence, Kansas and you're like, it's a hundred degrees every day. I mean, 85, that's not that hard. Um, it, it's still, it's still pretty tough. It, it can take a toll, but it's not gonna, it's clearly not affecting him to the point that people thought he might be affected by it. And as, yeah, I talked about up top, his team is weak, but I think that's overrated because, you know, that really, they just been able to, to sit back on Ineos. Okay. Pogacar's isolated but Ineos is setting pace so he's got help there I mean what's going to happen like no one's really been able to exploit his how isolated he's been on final climbs and if you wait to the final climb it's done the race is over you've messed it up you have to expose him and isolate him two climbs from the finish which which happened yesterday but then you also have to be strong enough to finish that off which which no one has been um, Ineos is a strong team. Aisha and I talk about this a little bit in the chat, but I think what's so interesting and uh, what really got swept under the rug about the Vontu stages, Jonas Vinegard climbed that, uh, climbed Vontu faster than Lance Armstrong and Alberto Contador's best climbs ever. Um, and that was his second time that day climbing it. So the, these guys are just fat. They're just faster. Like Jonas Vinegard's not even a star currently yet. He will be after this. But he's climbing, he's going up these climbs faster than the stars of even seven years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So I think Enios is also, they're suffering like future, future shock, um, which if you've read Forever War, is, is kind of this phenomenon where uh, the US in like 2070 is fighting intergalactic wars. They keep, tr- they keep jumping through time when they have to go out and fight these wars. And if they jump 20 years, um, when they do a light speed jump, they're they're then fighting battles with twenty with technology that's twenty years out of date. Um, even though from their perspective it was five minutes, and that's almost what's happening to Ineos here, where it's like, well, we've got strong riders, we got Richie Port, we got Garrett Thomas, but it's like, hey man, like the sport's moved on since even since COVID started. Like, yeah, Garrett Thomas won this race in twenty eighteen, but like the sport's moved on. Like these guys are so fast, like they're climbing way faster than Garrett Thomas was in 2018. So um, I think it's just going to be hard for them. I think they're a little bit stuck behind the times, which is shocking because they're uh, you know close to a $60 million budget a year. Like, how could that happen? Um, and then also Richard Carapaz, if you think about his career, he won the Giro with, um, with really tactics and, and sneaking away, being underestimated and, and getting tons of time on some mountain stages where no one marked him because uh, Ruglich and Nibali were marking each other. He's not a watts per kilo monster. He does not really throw down on a climb. I know he's, he's always referred to it as an explosive climber. He does have an acceleration, but he's never been the type of rider who can just drill it on a 15K to 15K climb and just dust everyone. You know, he is, he's almost like a magician. Like he thrives with like sleight of hand, but the tour is not a good race for that. There's not a lot of you know, there's not a lot of places where sleight of hand really works. It's just really about, well, can you climb at this watts per kilo? If not, you're not going to win. So um, I think the UAE weakness is, is a little bit, they are weak. That, that's true. But I think it, the advantage that that gives other teams is actually way overrated because of how close the rest of the top 10 is and how far ahead Pogacar is. And that's why you take time in the first week. I know it's like, 
Pogacar went too hard in the first week. Now he's going to fall apart. Well, because he went so hard and, and, and pulled out such gaps, he now has this massive advantage. You know, he was better off doing that than waiting until now to try to take time. All right, well, that's my big picture view of the last week and then um, kind of how this final week will play out. And we'll get to that interview with Aisha Pratt-Lear. So Aisha is a Commonwealth Games champion in the 3,000-meter steeplechase, um, was fourth in the World Championships in, um, in 2017 in the steeplechase, sixth at the Indoor World Championships in the 1,500-meter at the 2018 World Championships, and second in the Pan American Games in the 2019 Pan American Championships in the 1,500 meters. She's heading to Tokyo uh, at the end of the month to represent her home country of Jamaica in the 1,500 meters. In addition to being a great runner and a great person, she is obsessed with cycling and professional cycling. Um, they're, they're very similar pursuits, but they're also very different. So I thought it would be really interesting to get her on to talk about um, her perspective of pro cycling, things she sees, questions she has, and that I could answer them for her. She also has a really good point about the 2020 Olympics, I guess, that are taking place in 2021 in Tokyo, and that it's not as easy as um, just leaving the tour and going to Japan to prepare for the Olympics. I know that there's been a lot said about that. That's what riders should be doing. She brings up some very good points to why this is not feasible, um, just from her own experiences of how difficult it is to try to you know, even get into, they're not even letting everyone into the Olympic Village. Um, I think you have to stay in the Olympic Village. You can't do your own camp like you used to be able to do. So she has some great points about that and just some great questions and, and views on cycling as a world-class athlete herself in an endurance sport. So, so let's welcome Aisha all the way from San Moritz, Switzerland. Aisha, thanks for coming on. I am ridiculously excited to be here. So we were just talking about it before we were recording, but you're in San Moritz training for the Olympic Games for the 1500 meter. Is that correct? That is correct. And you, I, I want you to talk us through, how did you, so um, you were not into cycling for many years. You're just a professional runner doing your thing. And then how did you get an interest in cycling, in professional cycling? Yeah. Long, okay. So long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Um, I, <laughs> I was just into running and, uh, my husband and I moved to Boulder in 2017 and Boulder unbeknownst to me is a cycling hub. And we happened to become friends with these neighbors of ours. One of which is the famous Spencer Martin, <laughs> uh, avid cyclist, cycling writer. And I just noticed we lived on Broadway, which is uh, a conduit to the you know most cycled road in America, Highway 36. Is that right? Is that a true fact? I, I'd never heard that. I would believe it though. I mean, it's. Yeah. I've heard that many times. I, I don't, don't know, know how you like would Boulder, Boulder, how you would Boulder upset. how could, you could possibly quantify that, but it, it could be true. You heard it here first. <laughs> most heavily cycled road in America, Highway 36 in Boulder. Um, but anyway, I became super into cycling through my friendship with Spencer, through living in Boulder. And then I got really pulled into it because of the link from elite runners that became professional elite cyclists. And I'd always sort of watched the tour. My dad, uh, cycled when I was young, but I was racing in, in Europe. I'm trying to think what was this, this must've been 2018 or 2019 where there was a stage, a time trial stage in Brussels. 
It was the start of the tour. What year was that? That must have been 2019. I remember this because you were in Belgium for running. Yep. Brussels to Brussels, stage one, 2019. Yep. Okay. So um, a lot of professional runners based in a couple places in Europe, San Marit, Switzerland, Font-Romeu, France, and Leuven, Belgium. And I happened to be in Leuven. One of my good friends that lives in, in Colorado, his name is Lex. He was college teammates with Mike Woods, who is a sub four minute miler turned professional cyclist. That got me into the sport so hard that I begun checking out Bello News, listening to uh, Beyond the Peloton, becoming a premium subscriber <laughs> and just giving so many hot takes to Spencer um, that I, I've just become so into it. And, you know, I like to just fancy myself, like p- projecting what I know about my sport into cycling, which sometimes translates, sometimes doesn't. But as the female equivalent of a sub four minute miler, I, I like to really think about how I would fare in these, in these cycling races. So it's pretty fun. I don't know. And you got super obsessed with EF and Lachlan Morton specifically, who would, we would see at the gas oh, station God. across from our house. And, and that would be like the, your biggest celebrity I, sighting. <laughs> I have completely embarrassed myself. Um, you know, when you're on a run, you start talking about like, oh, what celebrities would you be so excited to see? And mine are really not exciting. It would be like Ari Shapiro from NPR or like a famous cyclist. And I um, saw Lachlan at the gas station during COVID. I, we, I used to live across from this gas station where so many people would like get a snack when they're coming back from the most heavily cycled road in America, Highway 36. And I made, we were, I was coming back from the grocery store and I made my husband drive me over to the gas station so that I could say hello and introduce myself to Lachlan and, and take a selfie with him from my car to him out on his bike. And I like forgot how to speak English and uh, I'm still really embarrassed, but I still want to be his friend. It's so it's so funny to me because you're so much better at running than Lachlan Morton is at cycling, but he's done a great job at kind of carving out a niche for himself and he, he's a super nice guy. And so is his brother. Um, Gus. So I definitely support the Lachlan or the Morton brothers in this podcast, but it is so funny how obsessed with them you are. And EF is, I think I do like an off season team projection for the coming season. And EF is like consistently one of the worst and most underperforming teams. So it's also hilarious that you and Will, you and your husband, Will are both like super fans of the team, but they did that. A lot of, a lot of compelling guys in that team. And we, we love Alberto Betty all on this podcast. Yes. And lots of runner crossovers. They have another one. Jimmy Whelan is another Australian former runner now. Cyclist yeah. Training. I think he's in Dora. I don't know. I like get down those deep, deep Instagram holes where I like try to figure out where they are and what they're doing. I don't know why I'm so obsessed, but I, I am here. We are. And there's like, uh, I have a friend Kip. He's like a runner cyclist crossover. You know him he's also like a big believer in like runner more runners should be cycling, but it's like, I almost think Mike Woods is a bad example of this where Woods is so talented. Like I think people have a hard time conceptualizing how talented he is. At, he's almost like a cyclist who happened to run a sub four minute mile where he's so, he's yeah. so talented on the bike where now it's like EF is taking the, 
almost like a back and like an ass backwards view of this where it's like we should get more runners on bikes it's like well i don't know like that's a lot like you don't see many crossovers there's not many successful crossovers no and you know uh not to bash woodsy but he's just can't handle his bike like the other guys can so there's there's an issue there you know we're not all we can't all descend like freaking i don't know in his, in his in his defense, I was debating this with a few premium subscribers in the in the private chat, um, where they think he's like, oh, he's so bad. But it's like he is the best. I think he's the best. He's the best rider who's ever come over that late. I actually can't think of another rider who came to Europe as late as he did. And people will say like Primoz Roglic, or even like Lawrence Tindam. But Lawrence Tindam started racing at like seventeen in Europe. And like, that's late for them. And like Primoz Roglic started racing at like 22 in Europe. So it's in Woods. I think okay. Woods did his first European race at like 28, 29, where it's like, that's, that's, that's like not even almost unheard of. I think that is unheard of. I don't think another rider like Travis McCabe, who I used to race with, went over when he was like 28, 29. And he did like, he got like six race starts gotten one breakaway and then his contract wasn't renewed and he's probably the second most successful example so what woods is doing is pretty amazing and he's a terrible descender from like a professional standpoint but i also think people i was thinking about this yesterday where like he's better than like if you're an amateur cyclist and you're like Woods sucks i could descend better than him like you couldn't i promise you and like mark cavendish is probably the worst climber possibly of all time in the professional peloton and like he would drop probably one like one of the best climbers in Boulder. So it's like people th- like the margins are so small here where like the people you perceive to be so bad are like much better than like even the best amateur, you know, would ever be at those disciplines. From the armchair, everybody has a lot to say, myself included. Like you have to be so good to even finish inside the time cut where it's like, I think people, you know, people kind of overestimate how bad he is but woods is is quite from a i mean he just can't compete on like any stage that's not an uphill finish like he'll never be able to win um and so you had a a few you sent me over a few questions um i kind of thought it'd be interesting to do a reverse interview and then we'll talk about your tokyo experience like how like you know literally the hoops you have to jump through to get to tokyo to race the olympics and like you know how that could be pertinent for cycling and like maybe that could poke i I thought you raised some good issues like everyone's like well vanderpool's dropping out of the tour to focus on the olympics and then you kind of messaged me with a few things that i hadn't heard in cycling circles that are like good pushbacks on that where it's not as easy as just like flying to tokyo tomorrow and then hanging out until the olympics yes okay so i have I think seven questions slash hot takes to shoot your way. And the first one, um, I, I added Matthew Vanderpool to my, uh, fantasy team, which was dumb. Um, but I was just excited about him. Um, I guess my question to you is, would you stay in the tour or would you abandon for the Olympics? And I want to hear your take. And then I'm, I have a, I have an aside. So it's a good question. I went back this morning and looked. Since they started allowing professional cyclists in the road race, every champion has finished the Tour de France. So if you're going for the road race, you should finish the Tour. It's crazy to me that like this is a narrative that like Wout Van Aert or Julian Alaphilippe, he's actually not doing the Olympics, but 
I don't know, Alejandro Valverde should drop out of the tour to prepare for the Olympics because that's literally never happened. Like everyone who's ever won has finished the Tour de France. Um, one, one but here is he's racing the mountain bike, not the road event, which is insane in itself. It seems kind of unnecessary. Um, but those are like, a, I think those are like 90 minute races. So there could be an argument where doing like six hour road stages for three weeks is not good preparation for a mountain bike event. Um, he, uh, he, I don't think he really has a chance to win. I, well, I shouldn't say that. Tom Pickcock is probably the best mountain biker in the world who's also a road cyclist. If he does, if he got hit by a car, I don't know if he's racing, but if he's doing the race, he'll probably win. Um, Vanderpool's just not nearly as good as him. I think he could win the road race if he did it. Um, Peter Sagan did this in 2016 at Rio. It's, it it's, sounds cool, but it's slightly unnecessary. And then I wonder if Sagan could have that back because he probably could have won the road race and then he pissed away that chance to win an Olympic gold medal. Um, it's also a new thing that cyclists would even care about the Olympics. Like It used to be seen as like a joke. And then now I'm like shocked that guys even prepare for it. Because it happens early in the Olympic Games. For women, it's big. I feel like for men, I almost, I kind of forget about who won it, you know, maybe two days after it happens, but it seems to be gaining prestige. Um, Also, other things about Vanderpool is he like hates racing on the road. Um, He only came to the tour because his sponsors made him. And he, he's never raced three weeks in his life. And I, I don't know, I, it's kind of a hot take. I don't know if he'll ever race. I don't know if he'll ever finish a Grand Tour. Like if I had to guess, I'd say he just has no interest in racing that long. He thinks road racing is stupid. He'd rather be on his mountain bike, um, racing on his mountain bike. A lot of mountain bike races are during the Tour de France. I, I just don't see it happening. It, and it's, it sounds crazy to say, because he could be like one of, he could be world champion and then just like no show the tour, which is insane. Um, That's crazy. and he went into this tour telling his sponsors, I'll start it. I'm going to drop out at the first rest day. Um, they kind of came into an understanding that that was good. That could be good for them. Kind of the, the thing that's weak sauce about this is then he's going in racing a one week race while everyone else is racing for three weeks. So it's like, yeah, of course he looked awesome in the first week. Cause he, he, he doesn't have self preserve. Yeah, he's just like he can peak for that, and he doesn't care how tired he is. Like Johan Bernil, Lance Armstrong's former director, is like big on like the tour is just a math problem. Like the less energy you spend every day, the better off you are in the third week. So everyone else is conserving, and he's just there racing for one week. It's slightly unfair. I do think it was ultimately successful for him and his sponsors, though. I mean, he got a lot of publicity in that first week so much it was awesome having him in the jersey and even the tour might be happy about it because if they may if they said you have to race all three weeks he just wouldn't have gone so it it, it kind of sucks but it i think it worked out best for everyone um and it, when we get to one of your later questions we'll, we'll circle back on this i do think it to me it really dings him and like is he the best rider in the world at the moment because the fact that he's never even attempted a grand tour really I have a hard time getting past that. I know a lot of like a lot of cyclocross people listen to this podcast and they always get on me when I talk crap on them, but I I have a hard time moving past that cuz to me that's just a fundamental part of the sport. Yeah. So, I guess it was confusing to me because I was thinking um 
wouldn't the tour be the best training that you could have leading into the Olympic games? You sort of answered that by saying, you know, if he's only racing 90 minutes, but you know, you could pick and choose your battles, you know, you could just ride back and kick back some days, or you could use, um, you could use certain stages as different training stimulus. I'm not sure that it, I think it's a bad look to use your term. I think it's weak sauce. I wish you would have stayed in. Um, And it's also strange to me to, this idea of to prepare for the Olympics, to like get ready to Tokyo, to get ready to go to Tokyo, to go to Tokyo. What does that even mean? Because most federations have canceled their pre-games camp. So for instance, we can't, I can't get into the village before the 26th of June. No, July, sorry. Before the 26th of July, I can't enter the village and what we're seeing with a lot of federations is like um, having a small amount of numbers. They don't, they don't want to fill the village. They can't have 11,000 people in the village at one time. And you can't take public transportation. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't be anywhere other than at your practice venue, your competition venue, or basically in your room um, or eating a meal at your allotted mealtime. And further, a lot of countries, um, usually a month to three weeks before the games, the, the federation will put on a, a camp that's paid for. So all the athletes from um, any sport have like a designated place to go, place to go train, get on the time zone, acclimate to the weather. But countries have canceled the, those camps from a long time ago. I know um, some Polish athletes are going, um, some athletes from Norway are going over to like Fukuoka to be, um, at elevation, but it's strange to me, this idea of like, Oh, I got to leave because I need to go to Japan. It's like, well, you probably can't, or I don't know, maybe you go to Guam. I'm not sure where you end up that you're going to be, um, acclimating to the time zone and, and the climate before anybody else. Something you might be shocked about is like what your training with Joe is like, infinitely more scientific than Matthew Vanderpool's training. Like he's on a really old school Belgian team cycling and training and cycling is like really backwards. Generally, um, old school Belgian training is like even more backwards. Like they'll give you antibiotics for colds, which is a virus, which is useless. And like, they won't like let you sleep with plants in your room because they think the plants take the oxygen from you. So like, these are not, I guarantee you, these are, these guys are not in like highly scientific training plans and they possibly haven't even thought through what you just laid out because like Pierre Roland, uh, he's on like a small French team. He was targeting the Mamba on two stage and he found out the day before that it wasn't a summit finish that it finished on the downhill. So it's like an EF even last year at two at stage 17, they didn't realize Col de la Lose was like a steep climb. So it's like, there's a lot of not thinking things through in cycling. I think a lot of teams and riders just like, play it day by day and like a belgian coach will be like oh it'll be better not to be there so let's go to tokyo and then they find out they actually can't get into the country and he's i don't i don't know where he lives he probably lives in like monaco he's probably just at home in monaco doing suboptimal training he'd probably be better off at the tour so a lot of things in cycling can be just explained away with like no one's thought about it that hard R- running is definitely much more scientific and I guarantee you guys treat your bodies better and think, I, I also think there's like, 
like if you're just like a crazy person, it helps you in cycling more than it does running. And if you're overly analytical, like Balcomelema, he gets a few good wins, you know, every couple of years, but he, I think he just struggles with the day-to-day grind. It helps just to be, I mean, kind of like maybe in a, in a rude way, you might say like the dumber you are, the better you are at cycling. Where in running, that's not necessarily true because it, it does take a lot of scientific planning. That's so interesting to me. It, it's wild to me because there's so much money in cycling. I would think that it would be super specific and scientific, but and this kind of gets us to our next question. And also, I, I also think like, think how Primoz Roglic like planned his whole year around this. And then in stage three he crashes and he's out. So I, I think yeah. there's like a bit of like nihilism in cycling where it's like, well, if you, if you plan this all out, it could just a touch of wheels could ruin the whole thing. So it's like, let's just get hammered and, there's a lot of hard living in the professional peloton. I think people would be shocked by that. Yeah, interesting. This does lead us into our next question. Um, so I want to talk about Ineos. I should first say, not a big fan of the team. Sorry. Um, but I feel like they're making a ton of mistakes. Um, and they're veterans. They should be doing their Ineos thing. They should be doing their Team Sky thing. I'm wondering, are we seeing um, some bad personalities, um, bad leadership? What's going on? Um, have, are the doping scandals with Dr. Freeman getting convicted? Like, is there, do you think that there's bad blood? Do you think that there's bad energy? I mean, I know that they, they rode well in the last stage, um, putting, you know, the riders up the road, bringing them back that looked a little bit more classic team tactic, but, um, it, none of it really ultimately matters with how Pogacha is doing, but, um, what's your take on why is Ineos not Ineos. My notes just say yes to all. But there are a, <laughs> there's a few <laughs> things going on here where I think, first of all, when you don't have the strongest rider in the race, you start to look dumber. Like for years, people thought Movistar was a joke. But I think Movistar just looked like a joke because they didn't have a rider to finish off all the work. And if you go back, if we like replayed the last 10 tours and Ineos didn't have the strongest rider, they probably look pretty bad. It's like, okay, you're leading on climbs. Okay, so what? Like, I think Chris Froome bailed them out of a lot. And we probably didn't notice a lot of cracks in the foundation until now. Um, part two is they, it's like a super tragic story. They had this guy, Nico Portal, he was probably the best, um, like, strategy guy in the, in the sport. And he, he was young. He was like 41 years old. And he died at his house from a heart attack like a year and a half ago. And the teams had a noticeable drop-off in performance, um, at like in-road performance since he's died. So I would guess just like the brain trust in the team car is not what it used to be. Um, Portal was really good at managing those personalities. And yeah, I, I, it's odd to me how they've built this roster. They have a lot of, it sounds rude to say, I'm 33, so it's like, I, I, I'm not an ageist, I'm just these are people around my age and like, you know, I just know my own body, but like these guys are old. Like Garrett Thomas is old. Richie Port is old. Like they should not be leaders at the tour. And the, and they're, the problem is it's like this bad matrix of like you're old and you're famous and you have a big ego and you've won before. You would not yeah. pick these people to be on your team. It's, it's like the worst 
mix of personalities you could have. Like Theo Gegenhardt is a pretty good rider, but he's probably not, you know, he won a grand tour, but like, I think that's all he's ever, he's never going to win another one. Like, but now that he's won it, he's probably telling himself like, well, I could be leading this team. And it's like Garrett Thomas, you know, I know from being around his age that it's like, you're like, well, I'm just as good as I was in 2019, but you're, you know, 2018, but you're not like, it's just like, you're not as good. And yeah, so I think it's like a mix of in the doping scandals can't, that, that cannot have helped. Um, and I, I do think this also, I think this just happens like as organizations get bigger and more bloated, like Dave Brailsford, the, the team principal, like used to be like, he would measure the rolling resistance on the tires and like, they would ever have, have everything down to a science. And now it's like, I wonder with the Freeman stuff where he's probably not at the, I don't know if he's at the tour every day. He used to like live in his own camper van, like, and travel around every race with the team where now, you know, I think he makes like 7 million pounds a year. He's probably like, I'm a rich guy. Like I have 50 million in the bank. Like I don't need to be sleeping in a camper van on the side of the road. So it's like, you just get wealthier. You move into a different, you know, bracket. You're, I don't know if you watch Drive to Survive, the F1 documentary. It's really interesting but the team principal of red bull he's like you know kind of, he's kind of like a working class accent like a british working class accent but like you just see him he's, his life gets fancier and fancier and he's like at these hunting clubs and you're rubbing shoulders with like you know fam- rich bankers from london and i think i think your life and your priorities just change so i i would guess there's some like institutional rot due to that and then just not they have not kept up the roster very well and carapaz i love him he's one of my favorite writers i don't think he's not a leader like he he's not at the level they would need to finish off the work they're doing like they did a lot of good work yesterday and like he's just not strong enough to do it like i think if they were really on their best they would have identified pogachar before uae did and he would be on Ineos, and he would be their leader the fact that he slipped through the cracks and another team signed him they wouldn't have let that happen five years ago. So, I, yeah, I think it's just a, a mix of all of that. And then, yeah, the roster is so confusing to me because they do have, they do have strong guys who aren't at this race. Like Adam Yates is a, is a really strong rider. He would be better than Richie Port. Um, Garrett Thomas, would, I bet Rowan Dennis would be better in that role. It gets complicated because those are famous people in, in Britain and it's a British team and the owner is British. And there's definitely like a nationalistic tilt there. But also, like, Egan Bernal is probably the second best stage racer in the world, and he's not at this race. Um, they, they have yeah. essentially sent, like, a B or C team. So a lot of, a lot of confusing decisions on, on that team. Yes. A lot of confusing decisions. And now they just look like a proxy team for Pogaccio. Like, they're just doing all the work for him. And, yeah, when you're just the best rider, it doesn't really matter if it's your team or someone else's team. You just follow along yeah you keep make everyone they bail him out every day like he can just sit on their like the last climb yesterday he could just sit on their wheels it's like that was perfect for him they they couldn't be doing anything better for tade pogachar than they're currently doing crazy okay next question um what do you attribute cavendish's resurgence to is to kind of quick step just a superior lead out team do they did they just hit it once do a perfect lead out and give him the confidence to just keep hitting that same formula time after time again. Um, stage 13, they were challenged and at the end, 
Um, there was a challenge to their lead out, but they still won. Are they just better? Are they just smarter? Are they just better practiced at this shake and bake? And Cavendish just is, is riding one full of confidence, can't be beaten. What do you think? That's what, what's the source? The Koenig Quick Steps definitely, they're so good at what they do, but they're kind of a unique team where they just like don't care about GC. Like they actually, they might have a guy finish in the top 10 here and like that's on accident. Like they really don't care at all. Um, but they're so good at one day racing and like technical racing that like, yeah, in those finales, like Cavendish is almost, not having to do anything they're just so well yeah. drilled so smart um long time listeners will remember marco panati was on during the giro saying that like a team like that they're so manic like they're up here their energy is just like humming every day that it makes them really good in those you know high stress situations but it actually makes them unable to win gc competitions because you can't be at that le- you can't just be that high strung all the time um but as far as Cavendish, like, so they have the best, Dakota Quickstep has the best sprinter in the world. Sam Bennett is, I think, hands down the best sprinter in the world. He's not at this race because he got in a fight with the team. Um, so I thought they would be winning these sprints with Sam Bennett. I did not see Cavendish resurgence coming. So he won in last, before this year, his last tour win was 2016. And I was like, oh, wow, what a way for him to go out. And that was five years ago. Like, he, I, long time ago. Yeah, I did not see this coming. I, I don't know what to attribute. The team is, Dakota Quickstep is definitely like, you know, they have a really eccentric manager who rubs people the wrong way, but like they run a good, they run a tight ship. Um, they get the most out of their riders. His old team, Dimension Data, run by a really nice guy that I personally like. They, they get like nothing out of, they get really talented riders who never do anything there. So probably, probably a mix of that, just like, getting to a better team and he is so he he's so he's a manic personality so it's like when he's feeling good he can win like he could win every sprint stage at this race just on confidence um when he gets down he can go like four years without winning a race um but yeah i don't i don't know how to explain a 36 year old mark cavendish to, and, and the, the, i should say the sprint field's pretty weak um that you know i you race the people that are in front of you but these are not the world's best sprinters i think like pascal ackerman sam bennett and caleb ewan are probably all better than mark cavendish but this is still pretty impressive i didn't see it coming at all mm-hmm. and i don't know when you're on a roll you're on a roll and when you've done it you've done it it's like it's just part of your dna at that point of like you know how to execute this specific strategy you just do it again and again and again and it keeps working and then yeah if you're if you're manic and you're up and you're feeling yourself you're just going to keep delivering those wins it's pretty cool to see and he's eating no wind and if you watch these these finals like everyone else is getting jostled around and they're like yeah you can see on the front on cameras that like they're eating tons of wind and cavendish mm-hmm. never has to do anything like it's it's pretty impressive um and this lead out i was thinking about this they're they're much better than the lead outs in his prime like everyone remembers the HTC leadouts, but this Dakota Quickstep team, like he's being led out by Julian Alaphilippe, who's the current world champion, Casper yeah. Askren, who's the current Tour of Flanders champion, um, Michael Morkov, who's probably the best leadout rider of all time, David Ballerini, who could be winning the sprints himself. So this is this is probably the best leadout train ever. Like you just don't get riders. They're pulling for like a kilometer when you're supposed to be pulling for like 200 meters. Yeah. 
That's pretty cool. All right, next question. And I'm so biased in this. So I'm interested to hear your take. Is Wout the best cyclist in the world? Oh, uh, this should have been the last question. Um, this I was oh. I was up. <laughs> you can edit. <laughs> I was up early thinking about this this morning, unrelated to to you sending this over. I don't. I I think he has. You have to. He has to be in the conversation because I was talking about this with Liza's cousin yesterday, where he could be the first rider to win the final sprint on the Champs Elysees in the polka dot jersey. I mean that it's it boggles the mind like how impressive that is and to get second in a bunch sprint and then win the double von two stage the next day. I don't think we've seen, I mean, maybe like Bernard, you know, or Eddie Merckx could do that, but definitely no one in the modern era. Um, I, I'd say the only writer that could rival him is, this is going to be like, we're going to get tons of hate mail on this from the Vanderpool hive. But I think the only writer that could rival him is Tade Pogacar just because he is so good at the general classification. And he did win a monument this year in Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, we'll see how the Olympics... If he wins the Olympics, if he wins the polka dot jersey, a sprint stage, a mountain stage, and the Olympics, he's the best rider in the world. Which is pretty impressive because his spring was actually... I mean, he won, I think, Gent-Wevelgem and Amstel Gold, which is that's like a career's worth of wins for like someone like George Hincapie. And that was a disappointing spring and Vanderpool had like a better spring. So if he could, if he could turn the tables on Vanderpool later in the year, that's, that's pretty impressive. I want to see it. I really want to see it. I'm such a fan. I, he just has so many skills. Like I just love that he can do, he can do it all. You know, he can, he can climb, he can sprint, he's technical. He, he's just yeah he's such a dynamic uh body that i yeah i love to see it it's kind of hard to put into context context what he's doing i mean it's almost it's almost kind of like a lebron james where you can't believe what's going on you're like no one should have these skills and like right i guess it i i hesitate to say it's never been done because like bernardi no and eddie Merckx, i guess technically did what he was doing but the level of competition now is so much higher like I put it in a newsletter, but Jonas Vindegaard did Montbantu faster than Lance Armstrong and Alberto Contador, who are two of the best stage racers of all time. And that was the second time Vindegaard was climbing it that day. So it's like the guys now are faster than even the guys five years ago. Right. And Wout is able to win those stages and compete in the sprints. So yeah, it's, it's really mind boggling. And he might win the polka dot jersey, just like messing. He was just goofing around yesterday, getting yeah. those points, and now he could win the competition. Um, okay, I'm going to take you to a little bit of a lighter, a uh, little bit of a lighter question, and I'm going to throw a hot take into the ring. Uh, so we've seen a few of these gel. I'm calling them gel moves, where uh, someone is taking nutrition and attacks at the same time. And this is just a, a fun theory I have. Uh, we saw we've seen it two or three times this tour. And I think that it's intentional because if you are eating, if you're consuming your body, your body's nervous system enter, enters, I think the parasympathetic state. And you, so your nervous system is calmer. So I think that if you're priming your body, 
giving it fuel and at the same time accelerating and attacking, I think that you are expending less energy so that your attack is stronger and you can hold on for longer because you've entered into a more relaxed state while you have expended energy. What do you think? <laughs> I love that theory. Or are they just like having a snack and then they're like, oh, somebody on, in their ear says, go now. It's probably the second one. Um, I, I'd have to imagine having a gel in your mouth. You can't breathe. That's like, that's the most confusing thing to me. Like I, I, I wonder if it's like Matthew Vanderpult did it at Torino, Torino Adriatico. And then I forget who did it. Someone did it in the breakaway on stage. Um, that must've been stage thir- stage 12 or 13. It's probably just an act. It's probably, they're just not thinking. I, I, it could be like another hot take would be like, no one expects you to attack when you have a gel in your mouth. So like the best time to attack is when you have a gel in your mouth. I doubt we've thought, I think we've thought about this harder than anyone working in professional (laughs) cycling, but I do love these theories. I'm not ruling it it out. Okay. So it's either a nervous system thing or it's smoke and mirrors. We're doing like some charades to throw off the Peloton. Uh, Either way. I'm happy about it. Yeah. We want more of them. Yeah. We want more. Let's see more. Um, okay, here's another question. Uh, why isn't Hershey better able to protect Bogachar? I don't understand uh, why someone who was going for stage wins last year uh, seems to get caught out and Pogacar is by himself isolated so often. I would think that the team would be stronger. I would think that there are riders in that in on his team that are able to do better work, Hershey being one of them. Yeah, this is a great question. This is actually why it's really valuable to have you on because I just would I just jump over this because I'm like, yeah, of course they suck. Um, not even worth talking about. Um, here I'm trying to find the start list so I can see their team. They have a lot of strong riders, like a lot. Um, so it, it could be confusing if I say like, yeah, their team is really weak because I'm just looking. Miko Berg, Rui Costa, he's a world champion. David Formolo, Mark Hershey, Rafa Mika, those are all, and Brandon McNulty, those are all really strong riders. I think what maybe I'm not doing a good enough job of articulating is like, so Mark Hershey won a stage and was awesome at the tour last year, but he, that's like, that's almost like has nothing to do with how you protect a GC rider because he's, he was winning stages because he's just like one of the reasons he's so arrow, like he can get, he can just contort his body into a really arrow position. That actually doesn't help if you're trying to work for someone. It actually hurts them because if you're more arrow, the person behind you can't draft off of you. It's good for winning races yourself. It's not particularly good for helping other people win race races. And he was like, the days he wasn't winning, he was like off the back, just hanging out at the back, you know, with like super soakers, noodles. They're just goofing around in the gruppetto. <laughs> Um, so it's like, it can be deceiving cause you're like, whoa, he's so good, but you're not paying attention to when he's just like literally hanging out. Um, w- when you're working for a team leader, this is why these guys get paid so much. And it's like a, it's almost like a, it's own niche inside of pro cycling. Cause you're, you work every day. Like it's hard to be a domestique for a leader because it's a totally different type of riding. I think it's not good. Like Mikhail Kiyavkoski on Ineos is great at it, but he used to be a Mark Hershey type rider. I think it's actually made him slower because you're just riding at the same pace every day. Like it's a high pace. It's not like an explosive pace, but it's really hard. You have to ride 
really hard, but not on the limit every day. Um, you have to know when to be in position, know, it's, know exactly what to do. Uh, that's, that race winners like never really have to learn. Um, same, and, and these guys are all young. So Tadej Pogacar is 22, I believe. I'm just checking. Yeah, 22. Mark Hershey's also 22. Um, Brandon McNulty, I think, is 23. So these guys are young. Like Rui Costi's experienced. Um, he's a pretty good team helper. And Rafa Micah is pretty experienced on the climbs. But other than that, like if you watch Berg and McNulty and Hershey, they're kind of always out of position early in the stages. They sit way too far back on the first climbs, and then they have to do big efforts to get to the front. And then they, they go way too hard. Like, on the, like yesterday, they should have let that gap go out to 20 minutes. Like, why keep it at nine minutes? What was the point of that? You know, let it go out to 25. Let it go out to 30. And then you're fre- you've done nothing. You're fresher at the end. And then Pogacar maybe isn't isolated at the top of the penultimate climb where if, if Ineos had the strength or maybe they weren't thinking correctly, they would have attacked him there. Um, had their riders wait up on the descent, and they could have gotten a gap before the final climb. So UA kind of lucked out that didn't happen. But yeah, I just think it's like a mix of that's just not what they're good at. You know, they're good at winning races. They're not good at shepherding a guy around France for three weeks. Um, and then it's just inexperience and not, you know, I know that their director is having, like their main director is having health problems and he's at home right now. He's not at the race. I, I guarantee you that's playing into a little bit that no one's pulling these guys aside and being like, hey, you shouldn't be sitting at the back when we hit the first climb and then you have to make big moves to get to the front. You're going way too hard. I was confused by that. Like, I, I didn't know why they held it in nine minutes. They should have just let that thing go out, just let it balloon to 30. Like, who cares? Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's just a mix of all of that. It's, it's really interesting, though, because Hershey, you perceive him to be so good, and he is good at trying to win stages but it's like a it's actually like a huge endorsement for guys i'm just like looking at the start list where you have like jonathan castroviejo and ineos like you'll never hear about this guy winning a race or even mikhail kievkoski who used to be a race winner himself but you just kind of enter this part of your career or you just you'll pick up a new discipline where you're never going to win but what you do is so important and, and very few people can do it. And the team's just not built for that. Um, I think people perceive them to have a lot of money. I mean, Lance Armstrong is always talking about this on his podcast where like Bahrain and UAE can spend whatever they want. I don't think their budget is that big, actually. I think they, they don't have a blank check and they're just kind of, they have to have guys who can win races because they want to get wins. And they don't want to fill up the budget and the roster with guys who just work for Tade Pogachar and then never do anything else. Because it's, it's almost like duplicates your salary where you have like stars who win and then you have highly paid guys who just help stars. But it's like, well, what if the stars just help the other stars? It's, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of an interesting <laughs> thing to do. It's not working out. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably knew if they were really thinking about it, they knew that this would happen and Ineos would just ride for them anyway. So. What do they care? Right. And I guess if you're, if you are the best rider on the tour, no one can touch you, um, which is completely uninteresting to me. Um, but I guess, yeah, you just take the free ride. Like who's ever, whoever is driving the train, you just hop on and you know that you're superior. So you just, it, it, I guess your team really doesn't matter as much at the end of the day. 
it could blow up in your face. I mean, it is a little bit risky. Like if any, if Carapaz was strong enough, he should have attacked Pogacar at the top of that second to last climb. And he could have pulled out a gap. Um, I don't know if you noticed Jonas Vindegaard was basically by himself in the Peloton all day. Um, you know, it's, these are risks. Like it paid off for Yumbo Visma because Sepp Kuss won. But we could mm-hmm. also, you know, you can just like, you can retroactively write if something was a good move or bad move. Or if he flats, yeah. it's like, well, what are they doing with Sepp Kuss up there? He should have been with Jonas. Same with EF. They, they left Rio in there by himself as well. Yeah, and, th- and that's, I think that's why the people who I, I've my ish, I have personal issues with like the powers that be at EF, but the people in the car know what they're doing. They're really smart guys. Um, I and I, that's why Rigo's so valuable because he doesn't need anyone around him. You know, he can just you can just leave him by himself and he'll be fine. And like he'll probably ride onto the podium at this race with. I mean, he's rarely has anyone around him on the on the when things get hard, and then it lets the other team chase stage wins, which is important for a smaller team like EF. This can lead into my final yeah. question. <laughs> Name your podium. So I'm pretty con- I'm I'm overly confident about this, which means it probably won't happen. So I think Tade Pogacar <laughs> Tade Pogacar is going to win. Um, I think Jonas Vindegaard's in second, just because he is such a good time trialist. And then Rigoberto Urán is in third. You know, I would be. I think you could make an argument to swap second and third, but I think those guys have just been clearly the the three best riders. And Carapaz is only a second behind Vindegaard, but he's not good in the time trial, so it's not yeah. clear to me where he gets that time to finish on the podium. I feel so excited. This is not a. Um, this is a podcast, so you can't see my face, but. I'm smiling so much because here's my podium. And I swear I didn't just make this up. I have Tade Pogacar with the win, obviously. I have uh, Rigo in second. Um, I just think, well, I just like him more. And experience. And he's just, he's a cool guy. I'm an EF supporter. He's a good time trialist. Um, I was a little worried when he got dropped a bit on the climb in stage 15. But he caught up. Everything was fine. Um, and then I have Vingegaard as third. I but, yeah, I think uh, that's totally legitimate. I, I mean, Rigo could e- could easily take second. The funny thing about him is, I was talking to your husband about this. I like perceive everything to be rational, and you're like, he's just not been good for like three years, and then he can be so good, and you're like, well, what happened? But then I was reading, he was just in like Miami, like all spring, because his wife wanted to have their baby there. So they were just hanging out in Miami and it's like, you can't really train as a professional cyclist in Miami. Like that's why he was so bad (laughs) earlier this year. You're like, that's insane. Can you imagine that'd be like you going to like American Samoa and you just can't really run there because there's no roads or paths. And then you're doing diamond leagues and you're not doing well. And people are like, what's wrong with Aisha? And it's like, oh, she just like wanted to live in a place that didn't really have roads that you could run on, but she'll get in shape. Don't worry about it. She'll be fine. She's been running 30 miles a week. Don't worry about it. It'll work out later. But it's also his superpower because he never pan like he'll never panic or get flustered, which is why he's so good in yeah, the third he's week. He's cool as a cucumber. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is so undervalued. I think just in sport, like having um, I don't know, I call it like ice in the veins of like you just you know how to execute, you know how to do things, you have self-confidence, nothing is gonna rattle you too much, you're self-sufficient. And he, he is all those things. He's all those things. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I can get over my EF bias for Rigoberto. You have to. Well, and I lo- I do like this team. I mean, it's I think it's one is a GC team, one of the weakest in the races, but they do have a lot of they have the two Danes, Michael Valgren and Mag- Magnus Court, who are really strong. Um, mm-hmm. Nielsen Ballas sometimes doesn't know where he is or what he's doing, but he is physically strong. Um, and then Ruben Guerrero is is a really good rider, so they could they could potentially pull something off in this in this third week, I, not to win the race, but to get second. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, Aisha. It was great to have you. This was seriously the highlight of my last week here in San Moritz. <laughs> that's <laughs> I feel like that's could be a bit of an overstatement, but I, no, it really isn't. It really isn't. All I do is I train in the morning. I come to my studio. I sit on my couch and recover and watch the tour. And I have nobody to talk about it with because um, all of the runners are not cycling fans. So this is truly a highlight. Yeah, that can. that's a tough place to be. When you're watching cycling, no one wants to talk about it. And you just got to keep the takes in. It's tough. Yeah. And, you you know, usually I can just walk over to your house and chat through the takes, but we'll have to just do it across eight time zones. I just have to start hanging out in Switzerland in the summer. That's the problem. Yeah. That's definitely the problem. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and good luck with your build up to Tokyo. Thank you. All right. Well, it was great to have Aisha on the podcast. Hopefully we can get her back sometime soon and we'll all cheer her on at the Olympics at the end of the month. I will be podcasting hope, probably multiple times this week. Got a little tied up with moving last week, but I will be keeping a close eye on the tour. And as always, you can sign up for my newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye.